New York, this is Democracy Now! We are incredibly shocked and saddened by this decision by the Alabama Supreme Court declaring a fertilized egg a child. And uh, we think it flies in the face of science and everything we know about in vitro fertilization. And this is going to harm thousands of people and their ability to build their family and to seek the care they need for infertility and to have the baby of their of their dreams. The Alabama Supreme Court rules frozen embryos are children. The decision has sent shockwaves through the world of reproductive medicine and caused Alabama's largest hospital to pause in vitro fertilization treatments. We'll speak with the head of Resolve, the National Infertility Association, and with a mother who had a child through IVF treatment in Alabama and was considering returning to Alabama for future rounds of IVF to get pregnant again. Then, new details on the assassination of Malcolm X. I believe I was detained in this conspiracy by the NYPD, boss and FBI, in order to ensure Malcolm X's planned assassination would be successful. Two former members of Malcolm X's security team reveal details of their entrapment and imprisonment by New York police just days before his assassination 59 years ago this week. We'll speak with civil rights attorneys Ben Crump and Flint Taylor. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The situation in Gaza continues to deteriorate, with the World Health Organization calling the besieged territory a death zone. Israeli attacks continue on mosques, shelters, health facilities and humanitarian aid sites. The Palestinian Center for Human Rights reported the killing of human rights defender Nur Nasser Abu al-Nur and seven of her family members, including her two-year-old daughter, in an Israeli airstrike. Meanwhile, Doctors Without Borders said an Israeli attack on its shelter in Amawasi killed family members of its staff. Despite soaring hunger rates, satellite images show hundreds of food and aid trucks had been waiting at the Rafah border, crossing to enter Gaza. Palestinian officials say those in northern Gaza have only had access to animal feed for the past three weeks in the occupied West Bank. A shooting attack on a highway near an illegal settlement killed at least one Israeli and injured several others. Two of the three Palestinian gunmen were shot and killed on the scene. Israel's extreme-right minister of national security, Itamar Ben-Gavir, seized on the attack to call for even more restrictions on Palestinian movement and for more weapons to be distributed to Israeli vigilantes. A very big disaster was prevented here, thanks to the fact that all police officers in the Israeli police are carrying weapons, and thanks to the fact that citizens have weapons. We are handing out more and more weapons. This comes amidst ongoing military raids across the occupied West Bank and attacks by Israeli settlers. At least 400 West Bank Palestinians have been killed since October 7th. More than 7,000 others have been arrested. 
in The Hague. Hearings continue at the International Court of Justice over Israel's occupation of Palestine. State Department lawyer Richard Visek presented arguments for the U.S. yesterday. Under the established framework, any movement towards Israel's withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza requires consideration of Israel's very real security needs. We were all reminded of those security needs on October 7, and they persist. The court should not find that Israel is legally obligated to immediately and unconditionally withdraw from occupied territory. Alongside Fiji, the U.S. is the only country participating in the world court hearings in favor of allowing Israel's decades-long occupation of Palestine to continue. Earlier today, an official from the Chinese foreign ministry, Ma Xinmin, addressed the court. In pursuit of the right to self-determination, Palestinian people use force to resist foreign oppression and complete the establishment an independent state is inalienable right well-founded in international law. President Biden's facing more backlash over his handling of the humanitarian crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, following reports the White House is considering executive action to deny the right to request asylum for migrants who enter through non-official ports of entry. The authority was previously invoked by the Trump administration. In response, Congressional Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal said, quote, cruel enforcement-only policies have been tried for 30 years, and simply they do not work work. Um, she went on to say, taking pages out of Donald Trump and Stephen Miller's playbook, we need to lead with dignity and humanity, she said. In related news, Texas has sued a faith-based shelter in the border city of El Paso over its work providing humanitarian aid to migrants. The targeting of Annunciation House, which provides food and housing for migrants and asylum seekers, is the latest attack by the administration of Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott as he intensifies his border and immigration crackdown. Earlier this month, Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton ordered the group to turn over documents, including personal and information on asylum seekers they've assisted. In more immigration news, a court in Washington, D.C. is hearing arguments today in a lawsuit accusing the Biden administration of racial discrimination and rights violations of Haitian asylum seekers. The suit was brought by the Haitian Bridge Alliance in 2021 on behalf of 11 Haitian asylum seekers who describe being abused by U.S. border agents as more than 15,000 people, mostly from Haiti, were forced to stay in a makeshift border encampment on the banks of the Rio Grande near the Acuna del Rio International. Bridge in Texas. One of the plaintiffs is Mirar Joseph, who was photographed as a Border Patrol agent on horseback, lashed him with split reins, grabbed his neck, and gripped Joseph by the shirt collar. After the assault, Joseph and his family were detained and deported to Haiti. Here in New York, the drug trafficking trial of former Honduran president Juan Orlando Hernandez is underway. Prosecutors accuse Hernandez of ruling Honduras like a narco-state, as he accepted millions of dollars in bribes from cocaine traffickers in exchange for protection. In the months after his presidential term ended in 2022, Hernandez was arrested, then extradited to the U.S., he was a longtime U.S. ally who received unconditional backing during his eight-year term, despite mounting reports of serious human rights violations and accusations of corruption and involvement with drug smuggling. 
In more news from New York, two former members of Malcolm X's security team have revealed details of their entrapment and imprisonment by New York police just days ahead of the 1965 assassination of Malcolm X. Yesterday, one of the two men and family members of Malcolm X appeared at a press conference on the 59th anniversary of Malcolm X's murder. This is Benjamin Crump. Why is it 59 years later? And they still won't give up the documents of their surveillance on Malcolm X, their reports generated about Malcolm X, and their actions and orders delivered from J. Edgar Hoover himself regarding Malcolm X. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. We'll be speaking to attorneys Benjamin Crump and Flint Taylor. President Biden announced another $1.2 billion in student loan debt cancellation for over 150,000 borrowers. The move will benefit those who took out $12,000 or less in loans and have been making repayments for at least 10 years. The Biden administration's canceled $138 billion in student loans for some 3.9 million people. Last year, the Supreme Court threw out Biden's plan to erase over $400 billion in federal student debt. New York City's queer and transgender community is demanding an apology after the Archdiocese of New York condemned the funeral of late transgender leader Cecilia Gentile held at St. Patrick's Cathedral last week. Some 1,500 people gathered at St. Patrick's to pay tribute to Gentile, a beloved activist, author, and actor who dedicated her life to fighting for the rights of sex workers, LGBTQ+, and immigrant communities. This is Cayenne Dorschau, community leader and founder of Glitz, gays and lesbians living in transgender society, responding to the recent attacks by the church. So what they're not telling you, the transparent Catholic diocese, is that canon law was her right to a free and equal funeral. She was not giving that. It was cut. We heard it on the mics. The world needs to know. Cecilia's legacy, if I have to say anything, was her work. And without her work, a lot of kids would have failed. They would have died. They would have been on the side of the road. My work. It's about saving people, sustaining people, getting people in college, in schools, in housing. Is the Catholic, Catholic Diocese doing that? Is the Catholic Diocese creating better people to be better leaders, to be better icons? Because we are doing that as a community. The Catholic Church needs to be ashamed of itself, period. The city of Chicago is suing six oil and gas giants, as well as an industry trade group which, quote, funded, conceived, planned, and carried out a sustained and widespread campaign of denial and disinformation about the existence of climate change and their product's contribution to it, unquote. Progressive Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson filed the lawsuit Tuesday against ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, ConocoPhillips, Phillips 66, and the American Petroleum Institute. The suit lays out the climate crisis impacts faced by Chicago, including more frequent and intense storms, flooding, droughts, extreme heat waves, and shoreline erosion. Chicago joins eight other states, the District of Columbia, and multiple municipalities across the United States that have filed similar lawsuits against big oil over their role in exacerbating the climate crisis. 
In Washington, D.C., climate activists disrupted an event with Montana Governor Greg Gianforte condemning his policies promoting coal extraction and exacerbating the climate crisis. We will not stand to sit here and listen to governors talk about things that do not concern us when the pressing concerns are coming in on all sides. We deserve a livable future. His children deserve a livable future. All the children of America and of the world deserve a livable future. The Montana governor was forced to leave the event after the activists took to the stage. Among other things, Governor Gene Forte enacted a law last year barring Montana from calculating the climate impacts of major projects. And in Avalon, Mississippi, a fire burned down the Mississippi John Hurt Museum Wednesday, just hours after it received landmark status. The museum honors country blues singer and guitarist John Hurt and was one of the last sites marking the town's history as a formerly all-black community. Authorities are investigating the fire, which the Mississippi John Hurt Foundation blamed on arson. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, the Alabama Supreme Court rules frozen embryos are children sending shockwaves to the world of reproductive medicine. Stay with us. When you walk through a storm Hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a love. You'll Never Walk Alone by Brittany Howard. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Alabama's largest hospital has paused in vitro fertilization treatments as it works to assess the impact of a ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court that said frozen embryos should be considered children. In a statement, the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System said, quote, We are saddened that this will impact our patients' attempt to have a baby through IVF, but we must evaluate the potential that our patients and our physicians could be prosecuted criminally or face punitive damages for following the standard of care for IVF treatments. 
The ruling stems from appeals cases brought by three couples whose frozen embryos at a reproductive clinic in Mobile, Alabama, were accidentally destroyed when a hospital patient dropped them on the floor. In a 7-2 decision, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled the couples can now sue the clinic for wrongful death. The ruling partly hinged on anti-abortion language added to the Alabama Constitution in 2018 that says the state recognizes the, quote, rights of the unborn child, unquote. In his opinion, Alabama Chief Justice Tom Parker cited biblical verse a number of times, writing, quote, even before birth, all human beings have the image of God, and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory, unquote. The ruling has sent shockwaves through the world of reproductive medicine as legal experts and infertility specialists take measure of the potential effects on access to IVF and other fertility treatments. For more, we're joined by Barbara Kalura, the president and chief executive of Resolve, the National Infertility Association, which represents the interests of infertility patients. She's joining us from Scottsdale, Arizona. And joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, is Angela Granger. She underwent IVF treatment in Alabama in 2020, delivered her baby in 2021. Before the Alabama Supreme Court ruling, she'd considered returning to Alabama for future IVF rounds to get pregnant again. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Barbara Kalura, let's begin with you. Can you respond to this ruling and what it means for people all over the country? It's, it's a shocking ruling. It is something that is, uh, is, is going to terrify people all over the country that this might happen in their state, certainly in Alabama. We um, Quite honestly, we have been predicting that something like this might happen, hoping it never would. But we are getting closer and closer to this. Uh, certainly with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we saw many more states try and attempt to declare a fertilized egg a person. And now here we have it. It's devastating news for uh, people who are, quite honestly, trying to have children and build their family. But Angela Granger, could you also respond to the ruling and talk about your own experience with IVF treatment in Alabama? Yeah, honestly, it was just very shocking. Um, it it was like it just took the wind out of me. Um, I did IVF in Alabama at a fertility clinic um, in Birmingham, and I went there specifically for the doctor who is amazing and highly highly looked upon as like one of the best in Alabama. And I would have loved to go back to her, but um, it just seems that that is just kind of a scary decision right now. And it's not something that I trust. I just don't trust what's going on to be able to go back at this point. <laughs> now, the largest Alabama hospital has now suspended IVF treatment. Was that the place where you got your treatment, Angela? Uh, no, it wasn't. I went to Alabama, uh, Al sorry, Alabama Fertility Specialist. Um, but it is everybody is like they're not kind of responding to anything right now, you know. So it just seems that even all my friends that have frozen embryos and whatnot, the um, their clinics are like, hey, this is a day by day thing, and we will let you know when we have a statement. And it just seems that there's a lot of question um, and a lot of confusion right now. 
Barbara, could you explain exactly how IVF treatments work and how this ruling uh, will impact all those seeking that treatment in Alabama? Sure. The goal of IVF is a healthy baby, and they do that by stimulating the woman's ovaries. They do a surgical procedure where they retrieve eggs. Those eggs are put in a Petri dish in a laboratory. They uh, then are fertilized with sperm. The laboratory personnel watch that Petri dish over the next few days. After three days, they assess the embryos. After five days, they assess those embryos. If the embryos at day five look to be um, viable, they uh, will transfer one embryo to the woman. And we don't know if that is going to implant or not. A lot of people think that, that doctors can implant embryos. They cannot. They are simply transferred to the uterus. What happens to those other embryos that were in the Petri dish? They are cryopreserved or frozen. That is a standard procedure. Embryos have been known to be cryopreserved and result in live births after 20 years of being frozen. So this is really um, modern science, but the state of the art care. So those frozen embryos are future attempts for that person to try at pregnancy. Um, those embryos are thawed one at a time, and then they are transferred again to the woman. Look, if we are talking about a frozen em an embryo as a person or as a child, can we actually even freeze them? Uh, that is a question that we have. We don't even know if some of the other procedures that are typically part of the IVF process will be able to be done given um, that um, the status of an embryo is now a child in the state of Alabama. And isn't it true that it's much less effective to for a person to freeze their eggs than to freeze a fertilized egg? Well, it can be done, certainly. It's just far more cumbersome. It's not as effective, as you said, and it's going to cost more. So if we retrieve those eggs from the woman and we freeze the eggs, so there's no Petri dish, no fertilization, and then we thaw one egg at a time and try and fertilize that, wait those five days, see what happened, and then start over. It seems incredibly cumbersome. I can't even imagine what it will look like in the laboratory to do uh, IVF this way. And it's certainly going to cost more, and it's going to put women through more. Keep in mind, for every one of these transfers, and I'm sure um, that your guest who's on can, can tell you this, you're put on medication. Sometimes it's injectables. Sometimes it's a pill. And you are preparing your body for that embryo. You want a pregnancy. You want the highest chance of pregnancy. So if you're trying to do this over the course of every one of those frozen eggs, being thawed and fertilized. I can't even imagine what that's going to put people through. Well, I'd like to go to a response to the ruling from uh, U.N. ambassador and Republican presidential hopeful uh, who was speaking on an interview with NBC News on Wednesday and was asked about the ruling. Embryos to me are babies. So I even mean, those created through IVF. I mean, I had artificial insemination. Yeah. That's how I had my son. So when you look at, you know, one thing is to have um, to save sperm or to save eggs. But when you talk about an embryo, you are talking about, to me, um, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that. 
So that was Nikki Haley, a Republican presidential hopeful, speaking on NBC News Wednesday night. Barbara, your response to what she said. Well, we completely disagree with the Alabama Supreme Court ruling. It flies in the face of science. Um, IVF has been practiced uh, in the United States since 1981. Um, a microscopic group of cells. We can't even see an embryo. You need a microscope to see it. Um, we do not look at that as, as a person, as a child or as a baby. It has the potential for life. And just like in natural conception, not every embryo results in a live birth. That's just not how our bodies work. That's not how biology works. So to equate that a frozen embryo, um, microscopic, is a baby, we just, we don't agree with that. And, it, and, and the science does not, um, does not agree with that either. I want to turn to White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre responding to a question about the ruling Tuesday. This is exactly the type of chaos that we expected when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and paved the way for politicians to dictate some of the most personal decisions families can make. All across the country, women are being forced to grapple with the devastating consequences of action by Republican elected officials, from undermining access to reproductive, reproductive care and emergency care to threatening access to contraception. And as a reminder, this is the same state whose attorney general threatened to prosecute people who help women travel out of state to seek the care they need. So the president, the, this president and this vice president will continue to fight to protect access to reproductive health care and call on Congress to restore the protections of Roe v. Wade in federal law for all women in every state. So that's Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary. Barbara Kalora, if you can respond to her and also talk about how this affects the LGBTQ plus community. Well, when um, when the overturning of Roe v. Wade happened in 2022, we were extremely concerned about how it might impact our community. Remember, these are people who are trying to build their family. And we have been fighting for many, many years uh, attempts at the state level to declare a fertilized egg a person. So this is not new for us. This is something that we have seen over and over and over again. However, those attempts have failed. Defining a fertilized egg a person has, has not um, taken hold. We call it embryo personhood. And yet um, we were extremely concerned that now the floodgates, if you will, would be opened after um, the Dobbs decision. So um, this is something that I, I hate to say we predicted and we thought might happen. And I, I also just want to mention that for, for, for people who are going through infertility or people who are going through IVF process, their embryos are incredibly precious to them. The, this is the potential of life. This is the potential of their child. And, and we treat that extremely seriously. So I don't want to discount how people feel about their embryos and how attached they are. There's an emotional attachment. Yet we all know who do this, that that is not a living human being. It has the potential for life. Um, your question about the LGBTQ community. So if you are um, in a same-sex relationship and you want to be a parent, you have options, whether that be through adoption or through medical assistance. And, um, and so impacting the, the community, well, if you're a same-sex male couple, you're going to need to do IVF and have a surrogate. If you're a same-sex female couple, you are, could try IVF. You might do artificial insemination. There are a number of, of possible ways, but certainly um, 
the the IVF process impacts a lot of people, including those with cancer. You can freeze your sperm and egg and embryos before you go through a cancer treatment or other medically induced procedure that can impact your fertility. So please understand this impacts a very wide um, group of, of individuals. And Barbara, could you uh, explain, do you see this as part of a broader attack uh, to restrict uh, reproductive rights? And also, are you concerned that other states might follow suit? Well, I'm going to start with your, your second question. We absolutely are concerned that other states are going to follow suit. We have seen states get right up to the edge of this and try for this. I now believe that they're going to look at this as a, as a precedent. They're going to look at their own statutes and make sure that they're airtight, that embryos are included in these potential wrongful death statutes. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced we're going to see legislative attempts to uh, define um, what a fertilized egg is. This is about defining when life begins. To, to answer your first question, this is kind of the holy grail. We talk about um, pregnancy. We talk about an embryo in the womb. But we have embryos outside of the uterus. And what is their status? This has been what um, the anti-choice movement has been wanting to do and to, and to define very, very clearly that this is life, that this is a living human being. And, um, and we just know that this is going to dramatically impact um, the care for people who want to have children and who need this medical treatment uh, to be a parent. I wanted to go back to Justice J. Mitchell's majority opinion, quoting the Bible repeatedly, saying, quote, we believe each human being from the moment of conception is made in the image of God, created by him to reflect his likeness. It's as if the people of Alabama took what was spoken of the prophet Jeremiah and applied it to every unborn person in this state. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, Jeremiah 1.5. Um, I want to put this question to Angela Granger. Um, you're a single mom. You went to Alabama. Do you think you would have your son today if this ruling took effect before you did your IVF? And talk about single moms by choice, um, non-traditional families that are becoming traditional families because there are so many, whether we're talking about single moms, single parents, the LGBTQ community, what this is doing to families in America? Yeah, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I strongly believe my son would not be here. Um, I would not have gone to Alabama had this um, ruling happened, and I would have had to find another way. Um, like many in my community dealing with IVF, um, I'm a single mom by choice, uh, meaning I use donor sperm in order to conceive my son. Um, but I also dealt with infertility, so I kind of had a foot in both communities. And the reality is, is there's so much trauma we go through before getting to IVF that deals with loss and grief and surgeries and all kinds of things. And so for them to now tell us that what we have been working so hard towards, sorry, is something that now we might be negligent or be charged for murder or something is it is so offensive and it just adds more trauma to the trauma we're already going through needing to do IVF. Um, 
Being a single mom by choice, one vial of one milliliter of sperm can cost upwards now with shipping over $2,000. So when we go to do IVF, we want to freeze embryos for siblings. That is the whole point. If we are lucky enough it, to have embry enough embryos to freeze, because those that deal with infertility are begging God for one or two embryos that come out of maybe even 30 eggs um, that are retrieved. So what is so baffling to me is that the people that are making these laws and, uh, you know, forcing them on us are people that don't understand what we've been through, what infertility means, what being a single mom by choice means, or part of the LGBTQ. We have no other choice. And now you're taking that choice away from us. Angela Granger, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, she underwent IVF treatment in Alabama in 2020, delivered her baby boy in 2021. Barbara Colora is president of Resolve. When we come back, two former members of Malcolm X's security team reveal details of their entrapment and imprisonment by New York police just days before Malcolm's assassination 59 years ago this week. We'll speak with civil rights attorneys Ben Crump and Flint Taylor. Stay with us. Metropolitan Opera's soprano singer Brittany Olivia Logan singing last night at the Shabazz Center at a commemoration marking the 59th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. It was 59 years ago this week that civil rights leader Malcolm X was assassinated, February 21, 1965, as he stood at the podium before a crowd here in New York in Harlem's Audubon Ballroom. His wife, Betty Shabazz, pregnant with twins, and his four daughters were in the ballroom looking on. As Malcolm began speaking, a man shouted, accusing another of picking his pocket, creating a disturbance. A smoke bomb was thrown. Amidst the confusion, three gunmen at the front of the hall opened fire. Malcolm was hit 17 times in the ensuing hail of bullets. He died on the stage as chaos erupted. On Wednesday night at what is now the Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz Center in Washington Heights, Malcolm's daughter, Ilyasa Shabazz, recalled that horrifying day. My parents' young lives were filled with joys, and they were filled with challenges. And one week before my father's assassination, our family home was targeted. 
A firebomb was thrown into the nursery where my sisters and I slept as babies. History records that we escaped unharmed, yet a mere seven days later, my family witnessed the unimaginable. Our father was gunned down as he prepared to speak right here in that location. My pregnant mother placed her body over my three sisters and me to protect us from gunfire and to shield us from the terror before our eyes. Malcolm X's daughter, Dr. Ilyasa Shabazz, speaking last night at the former Audubon Ballroom, now the Malcolm and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Education Center, during a commemoration marking the 59th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Malcolm X often began his speeches, including the one that was cut short by that hail of bullets, by addressing everyone in the room. This is a speech he gave in 1964 at the Audubon Ballroom. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. Well, 59 years after Malcolm X's assassination this week, two former members of his security team have come forward for the first time to reveal details of their entrapment and imprisonment by New York police just days before he was killed. Yesterday, one of the two men and family members of Malcolm X appeared at a press conference. This is 81-year-old Khalil Sultan Sayed. From its creation in 1964 to 1965, I attended public events organized by the Organization of Afro-American Unity, the OAAU, founded by El Haji Malik Shabazz, Malcolm X. It was widely known by my acquaintances that I had deep fondness for Malcolm X. As I spoke frequently with respect for Malcolm X, and I always made an effort to attend his speeches. In or about January 1965, I attended public, I attended public events, I'm sorry. On or about January 1965, I was introduced to Raymond A. Wood. I only interacted with Wood on approximately two occasions. Robert Collier, a new acquaintance, told me that he wanted to introduce me to his friend who had some ideas. This friend was Raymond Wood. When Collier introduced me to Wood, I had only known Collier for two or three months. Collier was invite, also invited Walter Boat to attend. Since Wood was undercover, I had no idea he worked for law enforcement. I later found out Wood was an undercover police agent, uh, I'm sorry, Wood was an undercover police officer from the, from the New York City Police Department and the Bureau of Special Services and Investigations. The idea Wood introduced was a conspiracy to destroy national monuments, specifically the Statue of Liberty. 
Those at the meeting laughed, so I assumed Wood was not serious about this idea. I said very little at the meeting. In the weeks leading up to my wrongful arrest and incarceration, I never heard the idea again. I was asked by a close follower of Malcolm X to serve as security at Malcolm X's home after it was firebombed on February 14, 1965. I was offered this opportunity because it was widely known that I respected Malcolm X and was interested in the OAAU. It was a small group of individuals who were asked to serve as security for Malcolm X's home. Only two or three individuals per shift. I would always have made myself available to serve as security for Malcolm X as I had I, I, was, I would always have made myself available to serve as Malcolm X security had I not been wrong, wrongfully arrested. It was widely known that Malcolm X's life was frequently in danger and under constant threat. On or about February 16, 1965, five days before Malcolm X's assassination, I was detained and arrested by the New York City Police Department related to the Woods conspiracy. I was shocked to hear the New York Police Department accusing me of conspiracy to destroy the Statue of Liberty. I lost 18 months of my young life for a crime I did not commit. I was only 22 years old at the time of my arrest. I spent four years as a student at Howard University working towards a degree in electrical engineering. I was helping my father during, I was helping my father in his store doing a gap year in my studies when I was arrested. As a result of my detention, I never graduated from Howard University. I believe I was detained in this conspiracy by the NYPD boss and FBI in order to ensure Malcolm X's planned assassination would be successful. Had I not been arrested, I would have attended his speech and could have served as part of his security detail. So that was 81-year-old Khalil Sultan Syed speaking Wednesday alongside our next two guests who are fighting for justice for Malcolm X family to expose the depth of the government's involvement in the assassination of the civil rights icon, um, <clears throat> both the NYPD and the FBI. We're joined now by Ben Crump, civil rights attorney, and Flint Taylor, lawyer and co-founder of the People's Law Office in Chicago. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Ben Crump, let's begin with you. Can you put that testimony in context? I was there last year for the 58th anniversary of um, Malcolm X's assassination, when you also held a news conference revealing new information. Talk about this year and the significance of what these two men had to say. Thank you so much, Amy. It is quite significant when you consider last year, Mustafa Hassan who 
was shown in photographs in the New York Times was present in the Audubon Theater the day Malcolm X was assassinated. In fact, he was the one who was seen grabbing one of the assailants as he tries to escape after shooting Malcolm X. And his testimony was very riveting because he said there was no presence of uniformed New York police officers. And they came up after all the chaos, after Malcolm had been shot. And the first thing he heard them say is he with us? Is he one of us? As if even NYPD knew there were undercover police officers in the Audubon Theater that day, and they didn't know what they had done in the theater that day. And now this year, we have two additional witnesses who have never before spoken come and offer new evidence these were members of Malcolm X's security team. Walter Bowe, who is now 93 years old, who was a charter member of the OAAU with Malcolm X, as well as Khalil, Khalil Saeed, uh, who we just heard from. And both of these individuals were framed by Ray Wood, who, unbeknownst to them, was an undercover police officer working with Bossy and the FBI. And Explain he, what Bossy is. It's the Bureau of Special Services that was specifically targeted to infiltrate black organizations. They infiltrated the Black Panthers, uh, a core, as well as Malcolm X's organization in the Nation of Islam there in the city of New York. They were uh, uh, armed, if, if you would have, like a little brother to the FBI there in New York. And so what they were doing, we believe, was carrying out the deeds at the behest of Jagger Hoover at the very top. And these young men, just as other individuals, have been wrongfully convicted to cover up for the conspiracy to assassinate Malcolm X. They were arrested five days before Malcolm X was assassinated. They believe that their arrest had everything to do with Ray Wood and Bossy and the FBI trying to uh, be complicit, if you would, in Malcolm X's assassination. And so that's why Attorney Flint Taylor and I and that Ray Hamlin, our legal team, are trying to peel back the layers to finally, after 59 years, get some measure of justice for Malcolm X's family. And Ben Crump, could you explain what was the pretext for their arrest? Can you talk about the destroy the Statue of Liberty uh, conspiracy? Yeah, absolutely. So this wasn't the only time we saw the workings of Raymond Wood, this undercover New York police officer. He also used this uh, to have the members of the Panther 21, uh, Afani Shakur, Tupac Shakur's mother, was 
a member of the Panther 21, and they were all arrested under this pretense that they were endeavoring to uh, bomb United States monuments, namely the Statue of Liberty. Well, that's the same exact thing that they said about Khalil Saeed and Walter Boat, Malcolm X's security uh, members. They said that they were out to uh, bomb the Statue of Liberty. I mean, you would think that they could come up with something new, but on all of these black uh, self-determination organizations, they would infiltrate them and try to say, oh, they were conspiring to bomb the Statue of Liberty, so we have to arrest them. And so that's exactly what they did to Panther 21, and it's exactly what they did to Malcolm X security detail. They came up with a bogus theory and had them convicted of crimes that was orchestrated by undercover police officers. Now, Ben Crump, can you talk about the man who was in the Audubon ballroom with a long gun uh, under his um, trench coat, um, the one who was set free? Uh, certainly. As Attorney Flint Taylor from uh, the People's Law Office in Chicago, who has joined our legal team to get justice for Malcolm X's family, uh, articulated Bradley, this uh, this individual who we know uh, from the files that have been revealed had a shotgun and was one of the killers of Malcolm X. Yet he was not arrested. He was able to leave the Baltimore Audubon uh, ballroom free and. They arrested two innocent people, we believe, to cover up for those individuals who they knew were responsible for Malcolm X's death. And this Bradley uh, fella was then, four years later, arrested for a bank robbery. He and his accomplice, his accomplice was in prison for 25 years, but yet Bradley was allowed to escape, walk away out the uh, jail scot-free. And so you know that they have something connected with this Bradley character if he continues to commit major crimes, federal crimes, and yet the government lets him walk scot-free as if he has something that they are connected to say that he will have no culpability for his dastardly deeds. And that's why we want these files. We want these files to see what connections, to see who were those undercover uh, agents that were in the Audubon ballroom the day Malcolm X was assassinated. And the reality is this here. It's 59 years later. Who are they trying to protect? What person's life will be put in danger 59 years later? They continue to offer us excuse after excuse after excuse every time we give four years for the information. They even went so far as to tell us 
that one of the reasons they can't give us the information that we request on the surveillance of Malcolm X and the uh, documentation that they have on Malcolm X is because Malcolm X is potentially still alive. Is potentially still alive? Um, let's bring Flint Taylor in right now. Uh, you stood there in the Audubon Ballroom, the site where Malcolm X was gunned down 59 years ago um, this week, yesterday, with uh, the family of Malcolm X, with Dr. Elyasa Shabazz, uh, with Ben Crump. Um, but you're actually based in Chicago. And if you can talk about why it is possible, almost 60 years later, all of these documents do not become public. And the experience you have back in Chicago trying to get information on another leader, the Black Panther leader, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, when they were gunned down in 1969. Good morning. Um, thank you for having me on. Uh, yes, uh, it was a very powerful experience standing there uh, for the first time for me uh, in that ballroom. And as you may know, uh, I stood in the blood of Fred Hampton the morning that he was assassinated uh, 55 years ago. And of course, that had a, a similarly uh, powerful effect on me and the people in the people's law office at that time. And that started us on a 13-year battle to find out the truth and to 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 change the narrative of of what happened uh, to Fred Hampton, uh, the uh, young 21-year-old, very articulate, very powerful, very charismatic leader, black uh, young black Panther leader. Uh, and of course, at first, uh, they talked about it as a shootout. Uh, and as we got into the litigation, and as the community raised uh, raised uh, the case uh, in the public eye over years, uh, we were able to fight to get ev evidence that was covered up uh, by the FBI predominantly uh, that there was this COINTELPRO program counterintelligence program, a super secret program that was um, targeting the Black Panthers, attempting to destroy the Black Panthers at that time. It came from Hoover in Washington, uh, and that it also claimed as part of, of uh, its program dealing with what they call messiahs who would um, bring together and, and, and lead the black liberation movement. And they cited to Malcolm X as one of those messiahs. So there's evidence that is starting to come out uh, about Malcolm X. Uh, that, uh, that piece existed back then. But what's coming out now, as, as Attorney Crump has mentioned, uh, is this uh, uh, file on William Bradley on uh, FBI file and a statement uh, straight from Hoover uh, that said there were nine informants, FBI informants in the ballroom, and that at all costs, they should not let those informants be known and at all costs, not let it be known what they might have been doing and whether they were working, of course, for COINTELPRO, because we know that what the FBI was doing was trying to foment the uh, split between the nation of Islam and Malcolm and his organization.
So the the uh, you put uh, this evidence together and you demand uh, more evidence about Bradley, about those informants, about Bossy's role. And Bossy seems to be kind of a junior uh, FBI uh, COINTELPRO program in New York. I shouldn't say seems to be, but was. And so that's where we stand. And that's uh, one of the reasons that Attorney Crump asked me and my office to come in because we fought this case, similar case, an assassination case that had in uh, in it the FBI covered up, uh, the Chicago police, informants, of course, the main informant in our case in Chicago was William O'Neill, uh, who set up the assassination of Fred Hampton. So those same questions come up here and after uh, Cyrus Vance uh, revealed uh, uh, the tip of the iceberg with regard to the FBI files that had been suppressed and the bossy files that had been destroyed, that's when um, Attorney Crump and, of course, the family and now the People's Law Office have become involved. And we feel uh, that it's not only a, a, a civil case or justice but that it's a human rights case, and that's not only a case that has significance in New York, not only significance uh, nationally, but it has international significance. And I think Attorney Crump and I are both calling on the mayor of the city of New York and the federal government for transparency for giving us these files and for, in fact, all these years later, making reparations. And that's what it is. It's reparations, not unlike the reparations that we fought for and obtained in Chicago for the uh, survivors of police torture. It's reparations to the family. It's reparations to the community of New York and nationally in terms of justice and in terms of compensation. Ben. Ben Crump, let's end with you. Um, Flint just mentioned the mayor of New York, right? Eric Adams is a former police officer. Have you spoken with him? Is he joining the call for the documents both in Bossy and the New York Police Department and the FBI to be opened more than a half a century after Malcolm X's assassination? At this time, we are unaware if he would join us in that call for transparency. I, I know that in past uh, conversations, Ilyasa and myself have uh, felt assured that New York Police Department would—I'm uh, sorry, the city leadership in New York would do the right thing here and help Malcolm X's family finally get justice. Now, with uh, Attorney Flint Taylor— and I and our legal team, we have put the ball squarely in their court to be able to tell us if they're going to be on the right side of history 59 years later. Will they give up their records? Well, Ben Crump, we're going to leave it there. We're going to ask you to stay for a few minutes so we can ask you about the Houston police shooting of Ebony Bouncy, an amazing uh, story with video just revealed. Um, and we'll post it at democracynow.org. Ben Crump, civil rights attorney, Flint Taylor, co-founder of People's Law Office of Chicago. To see all our coverage of the Malcolm X assassination, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks for joining us.